The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Thank you, Chris. It is a first for me, most certainly, to be prayed up by a man wearing an inflatable ostrich outfit. But I count it an honor. Uh, Hey, it's great to be back with you. Uh, I wanted to give an update on the Miller family. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Tyler Miller. I'm our campus pastor in Granada Hills. And my wife uh, is an amazing woman and gave birth to our first son, our third child. Three weeks ago, almost to the hour. Uh, I was actually watching the live stream while Pastor Matt spoke on Acts 6 about three weeks ago. And when I turned it off, the doctor came in and said, it's time to push. And so we had a baby. He's, his name is Josiah Scott Miller. He's a healthy, wonderful baby, and mom is doing well. And we are very blessed to have him. Um, if you have your Bibles, take them out and turn them to Acts chapter 8 for me. Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in Acts 8, going up from verse 25 to verse 26. I want to start with a question this morning. Have you ever gotten an unexpected call? Have you gotten a call that came out of nowhere that you just didn't see coming? I got one on July 7th, 2016. Uh, I sleep with my phone on silent, uh, and I woke up early that morning to see I had missed about four or five calls from Brad Garrity, who leads our community groups for us and does a phenomenal job. Him and his wife, Hannah, are a huge blessing to us at Story City. Um, And my wife suddenly got a call from Brad. She had her phone on. And they were calling us because Hannah was going into labor, and they needed a place to drop their oldest daughter, Emma, off. And so we said, sure, bring them by. Uh, We we threw ourselves together, and they pulled up in their maroon red car, and Brad walks the door with Emma. But come to notice, uh, Hannah was in a bit of a hurry that morning, and little Winston wanted to come right then and there. And little known fact, the Garrities actually delivered Winston, their middle child, in front of our house in their car. True story. I believe they've since sold the car. Uh, I don't know if that information was disclosed or not. I hope it was, and I hope the person got a good deal. I didn't expect that call. I didn't expect that that morning. And I just want to say, after being through childbirth three times now, you are a hero, Hannah Garrity, and Brad... You as well are a hero. That is an amazing thing, that I, and I'm sure some things that you will never be able to unsee. Um, you know, an unexpected call comes for us all at different times. And when we get a call, a call demands a response. A call is someone entering into the fray of our life and asking something from us. Jesus' final words to his disciples, or some of them, were, Maybe an unexpected call for them. In Matthew 28, we see Jesus with his disciples. And in his closing moments, he's walked with these men for three years. He's called them. He sought them. He chose them man by man to be his followers, his disciples. He loved them and taught them. Then he died and they watched him die. They watched him rise again from the grave. They saw the scars in his hands. They saw a resurrected man. He ate ate meals with them for 40 days post-resurrection. Jesus lived with his disciples and his final words and his parting moment in Matthew 28 are a call to the disciples. 
Matthew 28, 16 says this, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. That's an interesting verse. These, these men have seen Jesus rise from the grave. They're worshiping him. And yet in this moment, these men who had seen him die, who'd seen his scarred hands, are still in this last moment they have with him. Some are doubting who Jesus really is. Their hearts are filled with doubt. I find that so comforting for me. And I think for you, if you're anything like me, as someone who fights for faith. Verse 18, Jesus continues. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What we have right here in Jesus's closing words is a once and for all authoritative call an authoritative call that God has delivered one time and placed over all who would believe in him and be a part of his church as his savior and its king. And I want to tell us this morning that there's no amount of lapsed time 2,020 years later, no uh, varying cultural circumstance or moment that can alter the primacy of this call that is placed on every church in the world and on Story City Church in this moment. So just to boil this down and make it super simple and applicable to us this morning, why does Story City Church exist? Why have we gone through all the trouble to rent this park, this facility, and hold church and open up God's word and sing songs? Why do we have every ministry that we have? Why do we do community groups so that you can engage one another when we're scattered? Why do we do children's ministry? Why do we set up carnivals in Granada Hills? for students and kids? Why do we do Atlas Youth Ministry every week at the park where we can engage students? Why do we have a women's ministry that had an awesome worship night last night so that we can equip the women of Story City? Why do we do what we do? Why are we here right now, church? It's simple. The answer to why we are here is the verses we just read in Matthew 28. What is the call of Story City Church? What is the call assigned by Jesus to us this morning? It's a call to preach the gospel, to see people converted and come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a call to raise them up in the context of a local church, to baptize them in God's name and teach them to obey everything Jesus has done. The call on our church is to live on mission as we make disciples. That's what we do. That's why we're here. That's our call. And I find it comforting this morning that we're called, and I'm called, to do it with courage, to do it boldly. It's one of our seven identity statements. We are fearless in this fight as we go. And I think you can admit with me this morning, there feels right now like there's all kinds of reasons to be afraid, to cave into fear. Church, let's not do it this morning. Our God has all authority. The church cannot fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we are a part of that church being led by Jesus Christ, who has told us that he is with us always, and that he has all authority. I think that's helpful for us to hear as we start this morning and talk about God calling Philip in Acts chapter 8 and his call on us. Because what matters most, what is primary, 
is pristinely clear for us this morning. Jesus has not left any room for us to wonder what our purpose is. And as we've walked through the first eight chapters of Acts, everything we've seen unfold in the book of Acts has been the apostles called by Jesus to live out the Matthew 28 Great Commission, staying on point, remembering their call, fleshing out the Great Commission, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. And what we're seeing in Acts is the gospel picking up speed, breaking down wall after wall, bigger wall after bigger wall, like a snowball rolling downhill, gaining momentum, growing in size. The church is becoming an unstoppable force. In Acts chapter 2, quickly a review. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. We saw the church birthed as the Holy Spirit falls and Peter proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And we see that day 3,000 added to the number that is the church. The church is born. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John performed the first miracle as they healed a man, 40-year-old man, who was crippled from birth. And as Peter stands up again, proclaiming boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ, we read that 5,000 men were added to the church that day, not counting women and children. That means by, by Acts chapter 3, the church, most commentators would say, has grown to 10 to 20,000 men, women, and children. Acts chapter 4, we see the persecution that starts against the church as the religious leaders of the day take Note that their power is being threatened by this new movement that seems to be gaining speed. But we see that that persecution only emboldens the church and even more unites them in love as their roots are severed from anything they were once tied to and connected more intimately to Christ through persecution. In Acts chapter 5, we saw how sin entered the church through Ananias and Sapphira as they, uh, as they lied to God and man. And we saw God deal swiftly with that sin in order to guard the purity of this early church in order that it could stay a place where his presence dwelt for a specific purpose, for a specific time. Acts chapter 6, we saw the church beginning to grapple with this growth. It's grown from 120 to 15 to 20,000 quickly. There's administrational needs. There's all kind of uh, flaws and cracks appearing in the church. And we saw the apostles say, we need to focus on prayer. We need to focus on the ministry of the word. And they selected seven men, leaders in the church to become what we would today call deacons or ministry leaders, men who would meet the practical needs of the church and serve the body and care for it and minister to it in a practical ways. In Acts chapter 7, last week we saw Stephen become the first martyr, one of those seven men. He stands up and preaches a bold, powerful sermon calling out the religious leaders of that day saying, you stone and kill the prophets that come to give you truth. And so they stone and kill him. In Acts chapter 8, we see that Saul, this man Saul, is standing over that persecution, that um, the, the death of Stephen. We're told that people are laying their coats at his feet and he's approving. And right there at the beginning of Acts chapter eight, we see that the church is scattered for the first time. This honeymoon phase in Jerusalem ends. It's over. And Acts 8.1, we read, and Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea 
and Samaria except the apostles. What's happening in Acts 8.1, though it looks tragic, though it looks like a step backwards, is actually the means by which God is going to take the gospel and expand it beyond Jerusalem and move it out into Judea and Samaria where men might only see tragedy, God sees opportunity. Acts 8.1 is the fulfillment of Acts 1.8 where Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yes, the church is scattered in this moment, but it is far from broken. And why? Because in Acts 8.4, we read that those who had been scattered, what did they do? They preached the word wherever they went. What does that mean? It means they stayed on call. They stayed on call. They didn't forget their calling. And as we move forward, the central narrative of the rest of the book of Acts is going to follow this figure, Saul, who was a primary figure in imprisoning the church and persecuting the church, be radically saved and become God's instrument and tool to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. But before Acts takes us there, in our text today, it takes us on a side plot, an important side plot. And it shows us how the gospel carved a new channel for the first time to what Jesus in Acts 1-8 called the ends of the earth. The gospel is going to carve a channel to the far reaches of the earth through an Ethiopian eunuch, through one of the seven men that was chosen in Acts chapter 6, Philip. And we're going to see that the gospel moves forward to the ends of the earth in the same way that it's going to move forward in Burbank, California today. One soul at a time. God moves in massive ways through small, seemingly insignificant events. The gospel takes background one soul at a time. So starting in our text for the morning, we meet up with Philip. Acts 8.26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So a little bit about Philip and what's going on in his world right now. Philip was, as we've said, one of the seven men chosen in Acts 6 to serve the church. In Acts 4 through 25, Philip is used by God to take the gospel to Samaria, a place where the, there was great cultural tension. The Jews and the Samaritans did not get along, and God uses Philip to break down those dividing walls. He has a powerful ministry, likely not an easy one as he dealt with persecution and opposition. But nonetheless, God is using Philip in massive ways in Acts 1 through 25 to establish a new church in a foreign place. And suddenly, in Acts 8, 26, we see an unexpected call. We see an unexpected call from God to Philip. He says, Philip, leave this thriving ministry you've started that I've used you to start. Leave it. I know it's growing. I know it's important. But here's what I want you to do, Philip. I want you to go to the desert, to the desert road that I told you to go to. Not going to tell you why. Just start walking. Go. Go to the desert. It's not hard to imagine some plausible objections <laughs> that might have flooded Philip's mind in that moment, right? What, that he might have been tempted, just like you or I, to think, uh, God, God, 
if I may, what could possibly be so important out in the middle of the desert that I should just leave the work that you've started through me here in Samaria? I mean, huge things are happening, God, huge. Dividing, wi- dividing lines are falling and being broken. A church is being birthed. I'm ministering to great numbers. I'm seeing great fruit and you're calling me away? For what? Why? Philip doesn't say any of that. I wonder if he thought it, if he wrestled with it. But what we see in Philip is simple obedience and trust in God. Friends, when God's call contradicts our will, and it will often, when God's call on our lives contradicts our will and our desires, the only way forward is faith and obedience. Hear me, Christian, if you walk with Christ for long, there are going to be moments that come in your life where God says something to you and asks something from you that you do not want to give. There's going to be moments where God confounds you and there's something in you that says, I know God wants this from me, but it makes no sense. You may be in a moment like that right now. When God's call contradicts our will and desires, the only way forward is faith and obedience. It is to say to God, what you will, when you will, as you will. God, I will give you what you will, when you will, as you will. One hard reality of the Christian life is that often we only come to understand the purposes of God and his callings on us after we've taken the step of faith and obedience. We aren't able to see and perceive what God's purposes were and his call on us until we've obeyed. So question for us this morning, because I think, I don't think I'm off base in saying that some of what we've walked through in the last eight to nine months has given a lot of us a forward-looking posture. We're feeling the ground shift under our feet a little bit. (laughs) We're looking around at what's going on in Los Angeles, in California, in the United States, in the world at large. We're feeling the unsteadiness. We're feeling the shifting of cultural tectonic plates. And we're going, God, are you here? (laughs) You got this? You still on the throne? You still in control? We feel life up in the air and we're looking forward, wondering, where do I want to be when things land? Where do I want to have my feet set? God, give me wisdom here. So I want to ask a question. What is God's call on your life right now? What is God's call on your life right now? put it differently, in what specific way, in what specific place, in what specific setting is God calling you to live out the great commission that he has obviously called you to? You may be like me and you hear that question that I've just posed. And if I was going to answer it, I'd say, I wish I knew. (laughs) Tell me, please, pastor, how do I know what God is calling me to? How do I get clarity on that? Well, I want to venture prayerfully a thread you can trace to the answer. And it starts here. What are the current needs that God has placed in front of you? 
right now? What are the current needs that God has placed in your path today? Think soberly, think prayerfully with me about it. About the present ministry opportunities and needs that God has placed in your life. What are those needs? What are those opportunities for you? I can venture a few guesses. They may hit you, they may not. I'm just throwing darts at the wall here, but maybe, maybe it's being emotionally present in your home. Maybe it's investing the gospel into your children. Maybe it's tending to your marriage. Maybe for you, it's loving and serving extended family. Maybe for you, it's simply being lovingly and patiently and faithfully present in the life of a friend in our community that's suffering, sitting with them in their living room, giving them room to cry, hurting with them in their sickness, being a place, being a friend. Maybe for you, God is presenting a need in a soup kitchen, maybe in the foster care system to get engaged in the care portal here at Story City Church where we're engaging the absolute crisis that is the foster care system and the need for homes in this city. Maybe for you, it's in the people that live next door to you. Neighbors who need the gospel. I don't know. I'm just throwing things out here, but search your own heart. Search your life prayerfully. What are the needs in front of you right now? And here's why I think you need to start there and why I need to start there. Because I believe God reveals specific personal future calling to us when we are faithfully engaged in the present calling and ministry opportunities he's placed in our life. This is a way of embodying Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Church, we submit to God. How? How do I submit to God? You submit to God when you live simply with him now in the moment he's given you. That's how you submit to God, by being mindful of his reality in your present moment and responding to it. Some of us, God help us, are despising faithfulness with what God has placed in front of us because we are wishing for something different, something else anywhere else. Church, you can't sit on the sidelines passively, passively waiting and hoping for a word from God on what he is calling you to while you're ignoring the present calling that is obvious on your life to steward the Great Commission where you are. Tend to the field God has you in. Grow where you are planted. With a Great Commission mindset, identify the needs around you and steward them faithfully. Engage the moment with gospel truth and gospel love. And as you go and as you do, God will direct your path. He will begin to unveil his future calling. And for some of us, it may look like God saying, stay right where you are, even though all you wanna do is wiggle. (laughs) And for others of us, God may be saying, get your feet in gear, even though all you want to do is sit still. 
But I know this, when we respond in faith to the small nudges God through his Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, gives us as believers, we are blessed by faith rising up inside of us as we feel God using us. He strengthens us. He gives us joy when we respond to the nudges of the Holy Spirit. So church, if you want to know where God is calling you to in this season, the best thing you can do is pull your thoughts away from the temptation of being caught up in the future calling of God on your life and root yourself in present moment, great commission, faith, and obedience, trusting that God will guide your path and make his will known in time. D.L. Moody said, there are many of us that are willing to do great things for the Lord, but few of us are willing to do little things. It means many people want to do great things for God, but few people are willing to do anything for a great God. Many people are willing to do great things for God, but few people want to do anything for a great God. So Philip doesn't despise the present call of God. Even if it wasn't had in mind, he goes. Verse 27, and he rose and went. And we see God's purposes in it quickly. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, of, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. First thing we read here, and he rose and went. He responds. He walks the dusty desert road obediently, trusting God who is called, though he knows not why he's going. All he knows is to go. There's providentially an Ethiopian eunuch. This was a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Essentially, this is the CFO of Ethiopia. This is the man who is over the treasury of the entire nation. He's an important man. This encounter is divine. It's been set up by the Holy Spirit. It's been ordered, but Philip didn't know that. What Philip knew is that God had said, go. See, faith was Philip's task. Philip's task was to trust and obey and surrender to the God who has called him. What was in his path was God's task. His path was God's to order. And God has prepared this man for Philip. This man is going to be the entry point of the gospel for the first time to the ends of the earth. Church, here's an awesome reality. God right now has prepared someone to receive the gospel he has called you and I to proclaim. Right now, somewhere within a few miles of us, there are souls God has been working on and preparing to receive the gospel that you and I are called to proclaim. This Ethiopian man, the high-ranking servant of Queen of Ethiopia, has evidently somehow gotten some level of information on the God of Israel. He's returning from Jerusalem where he went to worship. He's reading scripture. He's got a scroll, which only the wealthy would have. He's reading Isaiah 53. But he doesn't understand it yet. He's seeking. God has been preparing him, but he hasn't yet understood 
See, God has initiated two things in this man's soul. One, I believe God has initiated in this man a restlessness with the gods his people have worshiped and all the worship he's seen of these pagan gods. He's done, he's, it's washed up in his heart and his soul. And two, what we're gonna see in the text is that there's a real hunger for actual truth. God has placed in this man's heart a hunger for the truth. These are two prerequisites for receiving the gospel. We have to be hungry for the truth and we have to be restless and weary of the failures of the gods of our lives before Jesus Christ. I want to I want to wind down or, or give the meat of the sermon in, in three things. I want to give us three ingredients necessary in the conversion of a soul. Three ingredients. The first ingredient is the initiating grace of God. The initiating grace of God is the first ingredient in a conversion. John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. Church, if you know Jesus, the reality is God was seeking you long before you started seeking him. He was pursuing you. When he wove you together in your mother's womb, he had set his heart upon you. It's true in anyone that comes to Christ. And I wonder how bold we would get in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, at the coffee shops we go to or the restaurants. I wonder how bold we would get with the gospel, how much more it would grace our lips if we actually believed that God, the God of the universe, has invited us into this story where he's preparing people to receive the gospel. He's called us to proclaim. And perhaps the only thing standing between someone and their reception of Jesus Christ is our obedient, willing faith to step into the gap and simply speak the truth of the gospel to them. I understand it feels scary in our modern moment. I don't miss the fact that some of us could literally lose our jobs for sharing the gospel in our workplace at this point. But I wonder if we really could see and understand God's work Understand that our workplaces are full of people just like this Ethiopian eunuch who are weary, who show up to work restless and weary of the LA grind, who have been failed time and time again by the gods that they've been promised will bring them fulfillment and meaning in life their whole lives. And they show up weary, not even knowing what they're looking for, but hungry for the truth. And they need someone to stand in the gap their hearts are softer than you may think, than their external shell may show. They may even be willing to come to church if you invited them, gasp. If we would stand in the gap, believing that God has prepared someone to receive the Christ he's called us to proclaim, who knows what he could do with it. God has initiated his grace and souls all around us. And he's called us to stand in the gap and proclaim the gospel. Verse 29. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me, how can I? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. I, I, I picture this moment in the desert, you know, it's just it's this chariot and there's Philip. There's probably not a lot going on out on this desert road. And so I got to think there might've been some social awkwardness to this moment. 
It's like, well, there's a chariot. I'm just going to walk up to it and walk alongside it. Philip is not deterred by social awkwardness. He's not deterred. He overcomes the awkwardness of the moment and approaches the chariot. I think our fear sometimes of just the simple reality of social awkwardness, and I'm someone that majors in social awkwardness, by the way. If you've ever talked to me, you know this. Our simple fear of social awkwardness can be a barrier to awesome works of God. To share the gospel, if we're believing John 6, that God is calling people to himself and we're to stand in the gap, we need to be willing to get uncomfortable ourselves. It might be uncomfortable for me to walk next door and invite my neighbor to dinner and sit down with them and literally share the, Jesus Christ with them. That may create a socially awkward moment. I need to be open to it. Not only that, but we need to be willing to make people uncomfortable with the gospel sometimes. We need to be willing to just sit in the awkwardness and trust that God is working, that he's moving through the menial, awkward moment. And this man says he's close. He says, I'm reading it, but I need a guide. How can I understand it unless someone shows me? He needs someone with knowledge of the scripture he's reading. And thankfully, in this moment, Philip has it. He has the knowledge of the scripture. Church, we need to be prepared, not only in our hearts, willing, but we also need to have minds that are saturated in the truth of God's word. We need to be able to answer the difficult questions people may have. And that happens when we live in God's word, rooted and studious of scripture and the realities of the atonement and the forgiveness of sins. I'm not saying you need to go back and get an MDiv. I'm not saying you need to be a brilliant theologian. I'm saying we need to be daily drinking in the word of God so that it will be what flows out of us when someone asks us questions about our Jesus. Verse 32, now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is it about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, meaning the scripture the man was reading, he told him the good news about Jesus. What we're going to see right here is the second ingredient in a conversion. The faithful proclamation of the gospel. A messenger willing to stand in the gap. First, you need someone who's been sought by God, who God's been preparing. Then you need someone who will stand in the gap called by God and faithfully proclaim the gospel, a messenger. So Philip climbs up in the man's chariot. He's reading the scroll. It's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the most potent, prophetic gospel passage in the entire Old Testament. It is a passage that points forward to a suffering servant who would be afflicted, who would die unjustly on a cross, become a scapegoat who was pushed out from the city so that we could be welcomed into its gates. It is a passage powerfully and potently about the realities of the atonement that would come to us through the finished work of Jesus upon the cross. And the man says to Jesus, who is this about? Is it about Isaiah? Is he writing about himself? 
We read that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture told the good news about Jesus. This shows us that so many people around us, even people in our church at times are looking right at Jesus, right at the scriptures, but the blinders haven't been removed yet. They can't see him. They need a guide. And so what does Philip do? How does he enter in? He opens his mouth. (laughs) I'm going to make a really simple statement here that seems obvious. To proclaim Christ, you have to open your mouth. To proclaim Christ, you have to open your mouth. There's a famous statement that circles through the Christian Twitterverse and world at times. It's attributed to a man named St. Francis of Assisi who started the Franciscan order. You've probably heard it. You may have even said it. It says, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. There's a small problem with this statement. Number one is that he, he never said it. St. Francis of Assisi never said those words. It's misattributed to him. Number two is that that statement creates an unhelpful dichotomy. It, help, it creates an unhelpful dichotomy between the preaching of God's word and the practice of God's word. It divides what needs to stay unified. Those two things have to stay hand in hand for either one to have any power. Church, if you're going to preach the gospel, you have to use your mouth. Uh, I'm a big Romans 7 guy. Romans 7 is where Paul says, I don't understand what I do. The things I want to do, I, the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. I do what I hate. What is going on? What a wretched man that I am. And it's a reality. Maybe I'm just the biggest mess here, but I want to say to it, if my life is the only gospel anyone is going to hear without an actual presentation of the perfect Jesus Christ, our world's in a lot of trouble. Maybe I'm the only mess here. But the whole point of the gospel is that my life hasn't measured up. That's the point of the gospel. That's why Jesus had to come to die because I don't demonstrate the gospel as I should so often. I'm not saying I don't have my moments, but by and large, I need a savior. I need someone who's gonna stand in my place. Church, the whole reason you would want to share the gospel in the first place is because you believe it's good news of a free salvation, that you're not saved because of how good you've been, but because of the free gift God has given you through Christ. Why share a gospel that feels like a to-do list? Why would I want to go to my neighbor's house and make myself feel uncomfortable and him and her feel uncomfortable so that I could hand them more things to do? Here, enter into my faith. It's a list of how to be a good moral person, to feel like you measure up. It's not attractive. What's attractive is to go to my neighbor and say, I still mess up. I'm a pastor and I can't get this thing right all the time. So look at my Jesus, the one, the God who came and stood in my place, died on the cross to redeem a fallen pastor like me and give me hope and give me life. As we sung this morning, the one who interposed his precious blood on my behalf, because I can't get it right. That's a Jesus worth sharing. That's a Jesus worth getting uncomfortable for. And that Jesus demands words to share the way, the truth, and the life. Those who share the gospel best and most frequently are those who are amazed that God would save them, but believe with all their heart that he has. If you're the person who thinks, of course, God saved me, I'm pretty good. I'm way better than him and her. That Jesus isn't very attractive. 
The Jesus that is attractive is the one that comes from the mouth of the person who says, the fact that I know God is a miracle. It's a miracle. Why would he save someone like me? That gives God glory. And that's a gospel that will turn the world on its head. That's a gospel that can work even in Burbank, California, even in 2020. Church, it's simply impossible to preach the gospel without words. Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? If you and I are unwilling to stand in the gap and open our mouths, how will they hear? We read that beginning with scripture, Philip began to unfold to him the good news of Jesus Christ. Philip begins with that scripture. What Philip was doing was unfolding the scripture. It brings a simple question. Do you and I trust the Bible? Do we believe that it's good news? Do we believe that it works? That there's power in the word of God, that it's able to divide? That the that when we need to share Jesus, what we need to do is throw all of our weight upon God's perfect word to speak on our behalf and trust it, trust in its power, use it as we proclaim Christ. We begin with scripture to tell the good news about Jesus because here's the reality, church. The entire Bible, front cover to back cover is one unified narrative about the reality that salvation is of the Lord and there is no name under heaven and earth by which you and I can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. That's the Bible. It's a unified love story about a God who loves you and loves me so much that though we walked away from him, he was unwilling to give us what we deserved and instead he came and stood in the place for us, died the death that we deserved, rose from the grave, spent 40 days with his disciples, ascended into glory, sat down at the right hand of God where he will return again to judge the living and the dead and that we will reign in eternity with him in his kingdom, which we will establish on this ground we now stand on. That's the narrative of scripture. That's the redemption story, God returning all things to himself. And it's all about Jesus. So what does Philip do? He tells him about Jesus. He fills in the blank. He gives him the hermeneutical key of the way to interpret scripture through Christ. The good news Philip unfolds is that Jesus, the righteous sufferer, crucified and risen again, has won the victory over sin and death. And now repentance and forgiveness of sins are available in his name, in his name. Have you believed this message this morning? Have you embraced that Christ that can save your broken pastor and can save you? Have you confessed your sin and embraced Christ as your savior? Have you trusted in his sacrifice on the cross and forsaken any reality of your own goodness to do anything for you at all? If this is attractive to you this morning, if you're the Ethiopian right now sitting on the lawn somewhere and you hear the spirit of God saying to you, believe in this Jesus, don't resist. Give in, yield yourself to the spirit's work in your heart and your soul right now. Trust that God is calling you into something great and good and beautiful away from the fallen things of this world that will fail you the rest of your life if you continue to give yourself to him. 
Cast your, cast your faith on Jesus. Fall upon Jesus. Confess yourself and your sin to Jesus and place your faith in him and you'll be saved today. And church, if you're here and you've done that before, I just want to give us this question. Are you living right now with the sweet remembrance of the reality that you're forgiven? Are you enjoying your forgiveness? Are you enjoying your forgiveness? You have it through Christ. It doesn't hang contingent upon anything but your faith being cast upon him. Are you living with joy in your forgiveness? Or have you turned Christianity into this kind of vague moral game that makes you feel like you never measure up and that you're always on your heels with God? Or are you simply just going to God saying, thank you for saving me today? Thank you for saving me today. Last two verses here, and we're done. We see the third ingredient in the conversion, the personal response of faith. The personal response of faith. In every conversion, there's an initiating work of God, there's a faithful proclamation of the gospel, and there's a personal response of faith and repentance. The first Bible, the first response the Bible gives is is baptism. We see that here. And they were going along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, see here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him. Baptism is important, church. I don't want to labor the point, but if, you have, if you've trusted in Christ and you haven't been baptized, notice here that they're in the middle of a desert and God goes out of his way to place them, this moment of salvation, next to a body of water. Why? So that this man could respond the same way the believers in Acts chapter two did, the same way the believers in Acts chapter four did. When they come to faith, they're baptized as a public declaration of their faith in Christ. So two personal responses that I can give to you this morning. Does this Jesus of forgiveness and grace look attractive to you this morning? Repent of your sin and turn to him and be baptized. Secondly, if you're here, church, let's remember how, just how strong this grace we've received is. Let's offer it this week. Let's just offer it to somebody this week. Let's tell them about the grace of Jesus. Let's, let's open our mouths and stand in the gap for our city that is suffering apart from God. Let's believe that God has been preparing people to receive his word and let's stand in the gap and proclaim Jesus Christ to a city that needs him desperately. If we aren't willing to do that, what are we doing here? If we are unwilling to stand in the gap, and proclaim the Jesus that we believe has saved us. Why are we coming to church? Why am I up here preaching? Church, let's stand in the gap. Let's be a church that is unique in Burbank and that we will not keep our mouths shut about this grace that is ours in Jesus. We're not playing morality games. We're not under some illusion that we're good religious people. We're radically saved by a God who miraculously chose us. That's it. That's all it is. I make myself available. If you want to give yourself to Jesus this morning for the first time, I'm, I'm around. I'm hard to miss. Got bright red hair. So come find me. I would love to pray with you. Same with the rest of our staff.
church, let's be bold with the gospel this week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your life poured out for us. Thank you for the blood that you interposed upon our behalf. Thank you that grace is rich, that it's powerful, that it's potent, that we can't undo it, that we can't out your grace, that you give it to us through Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Let's take that beautiful gospel, God, to Burbank with your power in us. It's in Jesus' name, amen.